happy to be back again in Spirit Rock. I was here last time, I think, in the year 2002. And so it's a great joy to, to come here and see how well this, uh, this wonderful retreat center has developed in my absence. Uh, and it continues to develop, which is fantastic. It shows that people are really interested in developing their spiritual qualities and therefore that they come every week. I mean, so many people, it's amazing. So Jack has asked me to uh, speak on hope and fear. And um, so I, I thought I would center this around what is called the eight worldly concerns or the eight worldly dharmas. Uh, the eight worldly dharmas, for those who don't know, are gain and loss, praise and blame, honor and dishonor, or good reputation, bad reputation, and pleasure and pain. And so the idea <coughs> is that basically everything which we do revolves around these concerns. That, of course, in order to be happy, we will gain things, we will get things, we will increase things, and uh, people will say nice things about us, and we will be, um, you know, praised for all our good qualities, and that we will um, not have people saying nasty things about us so that we get a bad reputation. And in particular, that whatever happens to us should bring us pleasure and satisfaction. If we can have all these, um, these basic qualities in our life, then we will be happy. Unfortunately, if instead we get, we lose things and people blame us and we get a bad reputation or we have to suffer in any way pain or unpleasant circumstances, then we are going to be very unhappy and miserable. And if we think about it, this is so much of how we lead our lives. We lead our lives hoping that everything's going to go right and, and fearing, worrying, anxious that maybe it won't go so right. Not according to how we want it to go. So we hope when we do anything that we will gain from it and we fear that maybe we will lose. This is very this is very common, but one has seen it very much recently because I came here just as the elections were starting. And I was in New Mexico um, on the eve of the elections and anxiety was rife. And the sense that, you know, if the candidate won, then everything would be wonderful and if the candidate didn't win, that disaster threatened. And so that this sense of gain and loss was, was very strong and undoubtedly, not just in Albuquerque but throughout America, the anxiety of if we lose, everything's gone. If we gain, everything is won. And this was a magnification of how we normally think in our lives. We, we really do believe that if everything goes the way we want it to go, then we will be happy. If things don't go the way we want it to go, then we are going to suffer and be miserable. And so this is what I, I want to address a little bit this evening, is this whole misconception of what the, the, the spiritual life is really all about. Because if we think about it, you know, it's all revolving around me. Isn't it? And of course, as we all know, being good Dharma students, 
the main problem, the reason why we suffer in the first place is because of our, our grasping and our clinging to our own self-concerns and self-image. Now the point is that Sankhsara, of course, is an ocean. The Buddha often spoke about the ocean of Sankhsara, and if you think of an ocean, it has waves. And so waves go up and waves go down. And as long as we are tossed up and down on the ocean of Sankhsara, well, sometimes we're going to gain and sometimes we're going to lose. And if every time we are happy when we gain and distraught when we lose, then we're in trouble. Because sometimes we will win, sometimes we will not win. Sometimes people will speak well of us, sometimes people will say mean things. Sometimes we have lots of happiness and pleasure, sometimes we have sufferings and pain. This is the nature of existence. And as long as we are only happy when things go right, according to our ideas, and are so upset and anxious when things don't go right, according to our ideas, we will never be genuine practitioners. So, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about taking all circumstances onto the path. In other words, we think that if everything goes well and goes right, then we will be able to practice properly. When things are difficult, obstacles arise, and we have problems in our life, that this is an obstacle for our practice. Sometimes people think like that. They're kind of fair-weather Buddhists. <laughs> but of course, you know, if we think about it, what, what did the Buddha talk about? He gained enlightenment and, you know, undoubtedly that was an incredible release because now he's seen Nirvana face to face. He was... His mind expanded to encompass the whole universe and the coming into being and passing away of all beings. He was a, a totally, absolutely, completely enlightened, once and forever Buddha. And then for a few weeks he sat under trees meditating, but eventually he got up and he moved. And he went to Saranat and then he met his erstwhile companions. And what did he talk about? He didn't talk about bliss. He didn't talk about emptiness. He didn't talk about even, you know, the, the incredible joys of samadhi. He talked about dukkha. He talked about the unsatisfactory nature of our existence. From his supreme Buddhahood, that is what he zeroed in on. And I think it's very important that we remember we are in samsara. And samsara is unsatisfactory by its very nature. So what's the problem? <laughs> when things go right, great. And when things don't go right, what well, is samsara? What do we expect? And if we think that, no, I'm serious, if we think that, if we realize that by its very nature, samsara doesn't always do what we want it to do, because it is by its very nature dukkha, then it's a tremendous relief. Oh, things don't always have to go right. It doesn't matter. This is, this is samsara, what do you expect? We're all born, so we're going to get old. We're going to get sick. Eventually, we're going to die if we don't die before we get old and sick. <laughs> Where's the problem? <laughs> and if we realize this, 
then there's no hope or fear. You know, we, we only fear because we have this very tight idea of how things should be. But actually, if, you know, in Buddhism, there are, of course, the six realms of being, and the highest um, within samsara are the heavenly realms. And in the heavenly realms, everything that one wants um, spontaneously appears. You know, that you think of, you know, a red Ferrari, whoop, you've got a red Ferrari. No problem. You don't have to go out and work for it, it just comes. And we have bodies of light, so you never get sick. You never have to take Botox or whatever it is. <laughs> Nothing. You're always endlessly youthful, beautiful. It sounds kind of boring, but anyway, it's the thing is that it is, there are no <coughs> obvious sufferings in the heavenly realms. We are living off of the interest on all our good karma, and we don't experience there any negative karma, and so therefore everything is wonderful. But because everything is wonderful, it is regarded as a spiritual dead end. Because there's no impetus to go beyond that. You know, everything's already perfect, so why, why struggle? You know, why sit and bother to meditate, you know, when, when already everything's fine? And, and so, if one is in a situation where there are no challenges, where there are no problems, then Spiritually speaking, it's, it's actually a great misfortune. Because one is living off in the heavenly realms, one is living off of all of one's good karma until that karma comes to an end where we have to come back down again. But when we come back down, we haven't learned anything. And we've just wasted our time and we've wasted enormous amounts of good karma and presumably one's just left with uh, lots of bad karma. So it's, it's really a downer, ultimately. <laughs> anyway, the lower realms, of course, excuse me. The lower realms, such as the hell realms and the ghost realms and the animal realms, are also very difficult because they're there, especially in, the, in the, the lower hell realms where one projects very paranoid and excruciating visions of suffering which one experiences. The suffering is so endless that one cannot think beyond oneself. One is trapped in one's own paranoia. So that again is a great disadvantage. The human realm is considered to be the best for practicing because there is normally a balance between pleasure and pain. One time, I'm sorry, one time um, I, I went to see this uh, astrologer in, in South India. A friend of mine was going to see him so I tagged along. And I said to him, look, I have a choice. Um, either I can go back into retreat, or I can start a nunnery. So what do you think? <coughs> so he looked, and then he said, well, if you go back into retreat, very pleasant, very comfortable, very blissful, very peaceful. If you start a nunnery, lots of problems, lots of conflicts, lots of difficulties. But both are good, so you decide. <laughs> so I thought, right, back into retreat. <laughs> but then I spoke with um, a Catholic priest, I told him this, and he said, well, obviously you start the memory. And he said, you know, we are like pieces of rough wood. If we always stroke ourselves with silk and velvet, 
That's very nice, but we don't become smooth. To become smooth, we need sandpaper. It's sandpaper which makes us smooth. <laughs> and so this is the point. The point is that the problems and difficulties we meet in our life maybe are our greatest opportunities. You know, it's like, I don't know, if I take this tissue, you know, I want to get strong arms, big muscles, you know, become really strong. And so I take this tissue and I lift it up and down. <laughs> you know, well, it's very nice, it's cute little tissue, but I'm not going to get muscles. <laughs> if I want muscles, I have to pick up heavy weights. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have to pick up weights. If you go to a gymnasium, a gymnasium is full of all these machines which are designed to thwart us. <laughs> <laughs> because of that, we get strength. Isn't it? You know? And, and so therefore, if we realize that the very problems and difficulties... You know, one time I went to see a lama. I know this sounds really but this was a very traditional lama. <laughs> I went to him to tell him about all the, my obstacles. And he said, if you say obstacles, it's an obstacle. If you say opportunity, it's an opportunity. And that's the fact of the matter. And if we once realize that the problems and the difficulties and the challenges which we meet in our life are exactly what we need to develop inwardly, to become inwardly strong, then we know that whatever happens to us, we don't have to worry. You know, and then there's no hope and fear because everything that happens, we use it. This is such an important point. You know, that we, we try to, to somehow create just exactly the perfect retreat center with all the perfect uh, environment and everyone's so nice and so silent and respectful. And that's wonderful. But if somebody starts using, you know, um, an electric mower or something right outside, either we can get all frustrated and angry and think of all the things we'd like to say to them, or we can change our meditation and use the meditation on sound. And then suddenly, what was an obstacle is, is actually our practice. If you see what I mean. I mean, as an example, anything which happens to us, we can use to develop compassion, to be develop patience, to develop generosity of spirit, kindness. For example, I mean, tomorrow I'm here, I'm going to be talking on the, the six paramitas, the six perfections. And one of them is patience. We cannot develop patience if we don't have anyone who annoys us. <laughs> so therefore, instead of being a problem, the people who make us upset and push our buttons are our spiritual friends. They are our opportunity to learn how to develop this very important quality. And so like this with everything, if we understand that anything which happens to us, we can cope. And we can learn so many qualities which, without these obstacles, we could not develop, then we don't worry anymore. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people say to me, oh, you must be so worried running this money, you have to raise a little money. And then you've got these 50 girls all relying on you for their 
you know, there's food in their clothing, and you've got all the buildings to make, and, you know, you've got to deal with the Indian bureaucracy, and, oh, you know, what a worry. And getting all that money. I honestly don't think I've ever worried about it. I mean, right from the start, I said, personally, I said um, to the Bodhisattva Tara, Look, lady, if you want this, you make it happen. <laughs> and so it's her responsibility. I just, I'm the frontman, you know? But behind the scenes, she's working it all out. I say, I never worry. Because I feel if, if the Buddhism Bodhisattvas want this to happen, and I'm sure they must do, then it's going to happen. I mean, we don't worry. You know, things happen. I mean, it's true. You know, I, I've never had any kind of uh, particular agenda, but uh, things come together because it's going to happen. And, you know, honestly and truthfully, even if the whole place burnt down tomorrow, we'd cope. We'd cope. And, and so for all of us, really, we need to develop this, this, this ability to know that everything which we do, everything which we hear, everything which we see, every single person that we meet is our practice. We can't divide things like thinking, this is good, this is bad. For one thing, it, it sometimes I, I think of the image of um, like a huge tapestry. It's this a little fatalistic, so maybe it's not really true. We're endlessly moving it, but if you think of a big tapestry, then we are in a situation of maybe even being behind the tapestry with all the loose ends, you know. And we see a tiny, tiny part of that huge tapestry which is still being woven. And we judge everything from this tiny, tiny little part that we see. Because we don't know how to go in front and stand back and see the whole picture. If we saw the whole picture, then we would understand. As we're standing behind seeing just a small part, we see these dark threads, these black threads, and we think, oh, this is very dark and very unpleasing. If we could stand back and see the whole picture, we would understand those dark threads are essential to the whole design. But because we see such a small part, we judge everything on just such a small little perspective. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see the interplay of causes and conditions and karma. If we could see, then we would understand that how things are happening are how they're meant to happen because we've created the causes and conditions for this to happen. How we respond now is weaving the next part of this tapestry. So moment to moment we have the challenge. We are endlessly weaving our future. And therefore whatever happens to us is a part of what we have created from before and when the causes and conditions come, it comes up, but how we respond is creating our future, moment by moment by moment. So therefore it's very important that we stay centered, that we stay conscious, that we keep our hearts open so that whatever happens to us we will respond skillfully and appropriately. Because then there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear. There is no reason for anxiety. Because our, our awareness will know appropriately how to respond. So it's very important that we take everything onto the path. And we don't discriminate. This is good for us, this is bad for us. Whatever happens, we use it. We use it to learn. 
somewhere there, there is a saying that life is the gymnasium of the soul. And so this is our gymnasium. And as I said at the beginning, you know, gymnasiums test us. There are heavyweights. It's the heavyweights which make us strong. And so often people look and see, you know, that it was during the hard times in their lives that they really learned. The easy times we just kind of cruise. And on that ocean with those big waves, instead of being slapped up and down with the waves, what we need is a boat. And then we ride the waves of samsara. Sometimes, in Australia at least, I compare it to a surfboard. Because on a surfboard, you have to balance, you know, and you, you want waves. You don't want it always to just be a smooth lake. That's very boring. The bigger the waves, the more fun. If one has balance. In Malaysia, there was this t-shirt, and the t-shirt showed big waves, and on top of it, a surfboard. On top of the surfboard was someone sitting in meditation. <laughs> and the slogan said, ride in the waves of life, be mindful, be happy. So that's the thought for the day. Are there any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Please feel free. So we've got a handheld mic too. For actually, would someone volunteer to hold it? Thank you. Hi. Thank you for that. I I also have a little bit of a voice challenge <laughs> this evening. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice for, I understand s sort of not being attached to the hope or the fear, and I really love the way you phrase the um, obstacle to opportunity. How does one hold that and also sort of have intentions for, let's say, self-improvement or hope for things changing. You know, I find it difficult to try and hold both of those things. I would be interested in any thoughts you have on that. Well, of course, I mean, going beyond hope and fear doesn't mean that you don't have inspiration and aspiration. Of course, we, um, you know, ha must have aspiration on the path, otherwise we won't go anywhere. So, I mean, there is... But when, for example, when you sit in meditation, I mean, it's very important not to sit there with any hope that something's going to happen. I mean, it's very important to just sit there and allow whatever is going to happen is going to happen, rather than um, trying to engineer it. So while one has the, the great um, aspirations to... Uh, travel on the path and, and that one will take the Dharma and use it for the benefit of oneself and others, I think it's important not to get caught up in uh, too much expectations because um, we don't know where it's going to lead us really. And if we, um, if we try to program it too much in a, to how we think things should be, then um, that, that creates in itself a great obstacle. What do you think, Jack? So, um, yeah, it's a beautiful question. Um, perhaps the aspirations then really are the aspirations for the heart. May I grow in love? May I grow in patience? May I grow in understanding? Whatever happens. So I sit in meditation. May I grow to be present and free with whatever comes. And it's not then controlling the circumstances of samsara, but rather it's coming back to rest in a, a deeper aspiration. May I, may I awaken to the way things are in these beautiful qualities. May I awaken mm -hmm. compassion. That's like the, the aspiration of the bodhisattva of setting the 
the direction of the heart. No matter what comes, this is the direction, and let's see what happens. Mm. Absolutely. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> And when you're, uh, when you come to a point where you've been supremely lost for quite a long time, um, you can wait for so long, you can stay in the moment, you can do all those things, but there has to be some form of understanding a way through. And you talked about knowing, but if that knowing is not there for some reason, where do you go? What do you do? I would start right back again at the beginning. And um, I would look at the very basic um, <coughs> questions of, like, cultivating uh, the good heart, of, of cultivating kindness, compassion, learning again to become more uh, centered, doing uh, calm meditations, learning how to be more present, and just basically going back to, to square one and, and starting again, so that um, one finds the path again more clearly, rather than trying to go on from a basis which has become rather shaky. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. You, you, yes. You, yes, I mean, you're talking about going back to simplicity. Or going yes, go back to it. Make it very, I think that the Dharma should be very simple. Basically, what we're trying to do, I, I feel, is to be more centered and aware and to open up the heart so that other beings, all the beings that we meet, are of supreme importance to us. You know, I, I mean, sometimes people say, oh, during the day I get so distracted and, you know, the Dharma goes out of my mind. And so I always say, realize that every single being that you meet, they just really want to be happy and they want people to be kind to them and not hurt them. So at least that much, every being you meet, the first thing is to wish them happy, you know. And that way also one steps out of one's own limelight. You know, one isn't at the center but all other beings are at the center. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? Yes, I do. And, and in that way, that also helps us to get away from our self-creak. Uh, you know, we, we're so always circling around me, me, me. And even on the Dharma paths, we tend to get very um, self-centered sometimes. And so we have to step out of the way and, and, and put others there in our place. And that helps to open up the heart, I feel. Yes. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it does and it's an interesting because in the rest of you probably see it. Um, there's also a lot of unworthiness. Um, oh. You know, there, there are different kinds of self-centeredness. Some kind can be a kind of pride and look at me. But the other, the other, the flip side of that is that I'm worthless and I'm no good and so forth. But that's also pride. Which is a kind of identity, exactly. Um, and yet somehow to see the Buddha in each being that you meet or to, to, to notice that everyone around also wants happiness starts to bring what's good in you and what's beautiful out of you rather than, than that view you have of yourself, so. So it's not all stuck in. It's not all stuck inside. Then you mean you exactly. You're, you're you're opening up towards recognizing that every being you meet, you know, they have their their happiness and their suffering. You know, just as we have our happiness and suffering, and and so to wish them well, to wish them to be happy and to be free from their suffering. So then that takes us away from always zeroing in on my problems. Right? We realize how how really very interconnected we all are. Isn't it? Yes, thank you. Hi, can you um, just offer some insight on beingness versus doingness on the path of Dharma? Jack, go for it. Beingness versus. <laughs> <laughs> um. um. 
Um, let me ask first, what makes you ask that question? Um, I'm asking the... Yeah, I can hear you. Um, because I'm at this place in my life where I'm not... I'm a little confused over how um, my beingness is affecting the direction of my life in contrast to what my responsibility is in doing to make make this sh- you know make shifts in my life happen. Can you take say a t- tiny bit more um, specific? Like, is you're doing you know getting a PhD in you know um, nuclear physics? No, and it's, 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 it's I guess it's what? it's about um, like f- finding clarity around what job I. I want to manifest, you know, or um, the type of living situation that I want, you know, those types Thank of you. things. Thank you. Thank you. That helps. And often the kind of questions that you're asking, it's a, it's a, a really important one and a little bit related to the one before. Um, it's very helpful to have the specifics as well as the, the general question about being and doing. Um, because the question in part is how do... Um, how do I direct my life in a skillful way to look for work that's right livelihood and that fulfills me and offers something of goodness to the world um, without too much grasping or ambition and so forth. And uh, the only thing I'd say and, and see what Jetsama has to say is that there's a kind kind of inner regulation that comes when you learn a bit to meditate, you can start to feel when you're in balance. Um, and you get out of balance when there's a lot of striving. I need this job, and I applied to it, and I'm waiting, and I'm hoping. And if I don't get it, you know, I'm I'm going to be out on the street in a shopping cart, and you know, be homeless, and and all those fearful fantasies. Or being, yeah, man, it'll just come when it comes, you know, and <laughs> take another tug, and it's all going to be fine, you know. I mean. <laughs> but we actually like the Buddha that I talked about when, when he realized that he was way out of balance. That was one of the great lessons for liberation. There's a kind of inner sense of balance and begin to trust that wisdom. You need both. You need what Jetson Ma called aspiration or intention and that includes um, to live with wise livelihood, right livelihood, with right speech, right action because you're, you're living in the world. But to do it from a place of some trust and graciousness of heart and to do the best you can. It's a spiritual practice um, that you take into form. And you'll feel when you get off, off balance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's nothing I can say to that. That's exactly the point. That when we are really centered and um, really present and aware, then normally what we need to do flows from that. I mean, people who are really in a state of pure awareness, um, they don't even have to have any particular intention. They just spontaneously act and say, and to everyone else it seems totally appropriate, but to themselves it's just natural. They don't have to plan it. Uh, Ordinary beings like us, then, of course, we, we are not in that state of pure awareness, or very rarely... But still, we can become more present, more centered. And within that silence, very often what needs to be done just naturally, spontaneously occurs to us. So I would, as Jack says, I would trust in our inner knowing because something inside us really knows. But we usually, um, like my speaker, (laughs) get lost. Here he goes. That's the good thing about um, awareness. It's never too late. You can always start again. <laughs> you can always find it if you look. <laughs> it slips sometimes. <laughs> Is the little green light on? Well, the question is, um, this word hope, 
uh, is the feeling that we want something a certain way. And we look at civilization and our society, it seems that the greatest thing that we've done as homo sapiens, as human beings, is we know how to push the button good. I think that's about it. One of the problems that I find is following the disciple, to follow the discipline in yourself in this sort of uh, cosmos of being that we're all trying to tap into in some way. And the guidance coming from within, when all the sensory uh, stimuli outside is saying survival, but when you try to do a job, you want faith. So is it really not faith that we are pitting against fear? And how do we go from the hope to the faith to take the right path? That's great. It's like koans tonight, okay? <laughs> Somebody said that faith, uh, sorry, that, that hope and fear are both imposters, which is to say that each has a certain kind of story about how it's supposed to turn out. Um, that we can get caught in or attached to, and that isn't really a description of human existence, as Jetsama was saying. Um, and faith, uh, we are pointing to something, I think, quite important. Faith is really a different quality. Faith was a quality that, that you described in, in starting your monastery. I have faith, that it, or the nunnery, that it will happen, and it's not my doing, it's Tara's, it's the monastery of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and I'll do my part, and we'll see what happens. Um, and it's a, it's the faith comes from a, a a kind of inspiration, or again um, aspiration to see something that's beautiful, to do something beautiful with, with one's life. Um, and it's quite different than hope. Um, I don't know. Yes, what's I, your experience of faith? I, I think you know the faith. The Buddha said it was like if there's um, you know a, a river. And we have to go to the other shore, and there are all these people standing there, and they're frightened to go across because of the river. And then one hero, he says he believes in himself that he can go across to the other side, and then he goes across the river. And then because of that, the people also develop faith that it is possible to go to the other side, and so they follow him. So therefore, faith is in that sense of, of a belief in one's abilities, a belief in the possibilities of goodness is, is essential on the spiritual path. Without any faith that this will work, we'll, we'll never get anywhere. We won't even start. We'll just be running up and down the hither shore. So faith is a very important quality on the spiritual path. But it is different from just hoping that you're going to get across. There, there is that faith that you will do so. And you do it. Oh. <laughs> now, you're talking about faith. In some ways, that sounds like everything happens for the best. And that doesn't strike me as what you're really saying. Because if everything happens for the best, then why try? Where does effort come in? So obviously there must be other choices, maybe some better than the other. I'm not sure. That's what I'm asking. Well, who, how do we know what is best? Okay, then does everything happen for the best? Well, if one uses it skillfully, then it, it, we, it's all um, grist to the mill, isn't it? Well, if I go home and do heroin, or I can go home and meditate, if they are equal... How do I decide which is the skillful path? <laughs> um.
You know, in a way, you're talking about levels, um, and part of what makes Dharma practice interesting and really alive is that there is no simple kind of cookie-cutter answer. You do this, you keep these rules, and you follow this, and then everything's going to turn out okay. In fact, we, we live in a multi-dimensional experience in human incarnation, and I've talked about it at other times. There's, you need to both remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, and you can't, you, you can't just be, you know, happy, spiritual, and you know, n- not know your phone number. It doesn't work. Um, so there's a respect for form. There's a respect also for the fact that that, that we come incarnation as a, as a or in, in birth as a, fundamentally as a spiritual being, and that human incarnation is a place where it's possible to awaken and to resume freedom, compassion, our own Buddha nature. Um, then you start to see that there's the inspiration or faith that things are possible, and with that faith, you realize that I can any being can actually use the vicissitudes of praise and blame and gain and loss to awaken these qualities. And then you start to look and say, well, what are the forms that support this? Gee, if I go out and kill and steal, um, it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. (laughs) It is. I mean, yes, you get certain lessons from it, but you start to realize there are certain actions that actually um, make you further lost, further lost in separateness, further lost in and confusion for the lost and suffering. So you begin to see as you get quiet that while everything can be used to help you awaken, there also are um, skillful actions. And that those, both of those are true. You have a deep faith in the unfolding. If you pay attention, you will learn. If you develop compassion, that will grow. That's a very deep faith. And you also don't make the circumstances of more harm for yourself or others because it takes you on a different path. And you need to actually be wise enough, which we are, to realize that we're multidimensional beings um, and that that actually is part of the process of awakening. Um, and, it, uh, and it brings you then an ability to be both, uh, I don't know, to, to, to be in some way human and humane you know, an accepting of humanity with all its flaws, the tainted glory that we are, that Oscar Wilde says, and at the same time to live from a place of wisdom or beauty in your heart in the midst of all this. That You balance both of those. Yes, I mean, the Buddhist path is, um, you know, based on, on many qualities of how to lead a very sane life, and a life which causes no harm to others. I mean, one of the basic principles of the Buddha Dharma is to live in this world harmlessly. And harmlessly not only in uh, physically, but also mentally. You know, so if you take heroin, it will hurt your, your mind, you know, and it, it will be harmful to yourself, and from that it will also bring harm and pain to others. It doesn't bring, you know, really deep inner well-being and and satisfaction. So therefore, if you sit down and meditate, then it's probably much better for your mind. And since it's better for your mind, in time it will also be better for your speech and action, not just for yourself, but for all beings. So it all fits together, doesn't it? So you know what to do when you go home now. Uh, somebody over there. Can so, we somebody right in the back, or in the middle back there, in the blue T-shirt. Can you just say it loud? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 All right. Um, I believe that I'm beginning to somewhat see sort of the, the tapestry, like a, a bigger picture than just like a, a small. So I look as I look at um. Hello. <laughs> as as I look at um. The bigger picture, I'm somewhat like the lady said who's looking for the job, getting sort of lost. And um, what I heard you say is that you can sit and somewhat find the way that you're in, where your enthusiasm goes towards, or you, maybe the harmony that you can like um, go with, like in your life path. You'll figure out something that you're that is good. The energy matches your energy matches the thread in your tapestry. Now, um, and then you said something about the sandpaper. 
and like the trials and like the heavier weights. So I, I feel like if I look at the big picture, I can't just learn about the whole tapestry because my lifetime is only so long. And if I pick a thread or a, a way of life, then that is, that is like figuring out what I like to do. But then there are trials like the sandpaper or the heavy weights that I will have to go through once I have picked my harmony or the, the harmony of my life. And I'm just wondering if that... Because I was confused about the, the, the trials. Mm -hmm. You know, you push through the things that are difficult. Mm -hmm. But then um, I wanted... Do you kind of understand what I'm saying? <laughs> um, let me see. I actually I, I like what you're saying a lot um, in, this, in this way. First of all, I don't think you have to go looking for sandpaper. And you're going to get it because yeah. it's samsara. It's the nature of existence and praise and blaming. Anybody not have lost and pain, raise your hand. You know, you're going to have it. Um, if you're if you're devoted to only having pleasure and gain and so forth, you'll you'll suffer a lot. That won't work for you. But otherwise, what you're saying is, let me dedicate myself both inwardly to spiritual life, to not harming, to awakening, to bringing benefit to others, and then let me choose a livelihood that's right livelihood let me choose a partner you know in relationship and once you choose because um, you do have to choose and that's a wise thing then you will have praise and blame and gain and loss anybody who's ever been married knows that right <laughs> you, are, you will have a pleasure and pain or, or if you become a nun it's the same thing you know monasteries aren't like all fun it turns out you're living with a lot of other people and they're your sandpaper um, is that true? And Emily, she's lying. Um, so you choose a relationship, and it's not the perfect relationship, but it's the place to perfect love. It's the place to perfect compassion and patience. It's not the perfect job, but it's the place to perfect dedication and freedom and steadiness through, you know, a difficult boss or hard economic times. So that making a, a relatively, you quiet yourself, you make a relatively wise choice the best you can. It's not like you find the perfect job or the perfect person, because you're not, right? Um, it's the perfection of love, it's the perfection of patience, it's the perfection of willingness, and then what you choose becomes your spiritual path. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. So that, this is the last uh, question because we have to end. But please yeah. go ahead, whatever you. No, I, I mean, I was, I was thinking that's exactly it. I mean, this samsara in itself is not perfect. So how are we looking for perfection? But if we use what we find, then we ourselves are the ones who can become perfected. Um, thank you so much for coming and inspiring us all. And it's so. Uh, thrilling to hear from a female practitioner as yourself. I want to thank you for inspiring us in that way and breaking the boundaries um, that have existed for women. Um, my question is about Sangha, the third jewel. I'm, I'm uh, really pondering the question of Sangha because it, uh, to me, brings up the question of discrimination in choice of friends and community. And um, with, when I think of discrimination and sangha and judgments and choices and patience and following the path of love and of sandpaper, I get uh, confused as to how, uh, how to practice and follow the third jewel. Does that make sense to this, you? Though this is the last question. We'll do this briefly. Should what do you, you mean by Sangha? Uh, the com community of like-minded practitioners. Okay. I don't want to... If I think about Sangha, I find myself falling into just egoic judgment. Does that make sense? Should she pick just nice Buddhist as friends or she should have other kinds? Or, <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, I think the Buddha, the, the first thing he did, uh, you know, after sitting under trees was to go and uh, meet his erstwhile companions and create a Sangha. And there is a place in the, in the, the Pali Canon where the, uh, an interesting place where Ananda says, you know, I think that good companionship is half of the spiritual path. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of the spiritual path. And so clearly the Buddha felt that uh, 
are being with good companions, people who share our values, who are also striving, who really are taking the Dharma into their lives, whatever Dharma, you know, and, and really trying their best to have good uh, qualities and good values is very important for us, especially in the kind of communities which we live in, the society we live in, in which, as the Buddha said, everybody are fish going downstream, and one who practices the Dharma is a fish trying to go upstream. Well, it's very lonely if you're the only fish, and it helps if you have some other fish going along with you upstream. And so the community and of, of like-minded people people holding the same kind of values, I think is very important on the spiritual path. So, so with that, um, I'd like you to look around and see your fellow fish for a moment, you know, <laughs> and, and particularly to appreciate, as, as part of uh, Sangha and spiritual friends, um, Jetson Ma and her presence, because it's not just your own presence and clearly your dedication and, and your life of practice, but also you carry with you the nuns of your nunnery, all, all those young women who are there who are having an opportunity that they might never have had before, and the opportunity to actually transform Buddhism. There's this beautiful dance that's happening between East and West, because it takes kind of pushy Westerners like Sylvie Wetzel, you know, <laughs> teaching the Dalai Lama, and perhaps even Jetson Ma here. Um, <laughs> yes, it takes, th this dance actually is that we are, we are both learning and receiving wonderful teachings and we are bringing our own understanding and the, at, at times the very best of it to actually um, allow it to blossom in a new way. And it's a fantastic thing to be a part of. And we're all a part of the creation of this, this new kind of global awakening, if you will. And many of my good friends, like Ajahn Sumedho, who you know well, he now goes back to teach in Bangkok in this very modern city with, you know, that's become actually not so... Um, Buddhist as it used to be, but now they're really interested in having American teachers come in because they admire um, Westerners in a certain way. And they say, well, why are you meditating? You know, would you teach us? And there's this beautiful dance going on between East and West where we're actually supporting um, on both sides the possibility in the practice of awakening. So Jetson Ma's presence here is not just herself, but it's her nunnery. When you leave We'll, we'll do one little chant before we go. And when you leave there, there will be baskets at the door. And if everyone were able to, some of you are not, but if everybody could give in this room, gave $20 or $10 or $50 or whatever you could, we'd have quite a nice pile of money. Um, <laughs> and it would buy food and clothing and books and medicine, you know, for this whole group of young women that are part of us, that we're supporting to awaken, that are going to come and teach us as we, you know, as we support them back and forth. It's a really beautiful thing to do. So let us end with a very simple chant. Um, in India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and the greeting is Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. Um, I see who you really are, the Buddha nature behind all the uh, clothes and body and personality, but the spirit behind that. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to pay respects to or bow to. And I'd like us just to chant the word namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel inwardly what you'd like to bow to. And it might be to your own sincerity in coming this evening and listening or sitting or that seed of awakening in you or to the nuns in Jetson Ma's nunnery and all those who are dedicating their lives as she has or to someone that you know that you want to respect who they are or to a difficult place in the world where instead of um, seeing it with aversion or hatred, you might bow to the suffering of that, that it be held in compassion, that those beings to awaken. So we'll just chant Namo nine times and then go out into this autumn evening. Namo Namo
And may you carry the blessings of stillness, of a quiet mind, and an open heart with you as you go out back into the dance of the world um, for the days and the week ahead. Thank you. And thank you, Jetsama, so much. And thank you for your great kind attention and your generosity and support. It really means a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.